0: Here is my request.
1: You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Funny to hop off at 8 o'clock at the Greater 3UZ Sammy Show for Friday night. Okay, the time is 22 before 9, 12.72 SM with you, MacRay, in the morning.
0: 4AP and Kevin Hillier, Sunday morning, out for a couple of showers later today, and a top of 25. It's 27 past 12 right now, this is Laurie Bennett at 2SM. At 24 to 8 with Peter Grayson, town at the moment 17 degrees.
1: Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to speak to the people, behind the voices, who are friends to a whole generation. And today's guest went from the deserts of Dubai, listening to a crackling radio Australia, to becoming the youngest drive-time announcer in the history of Sydney radio, then to Melbourne, and back to Sydney, Mike Hammond is definitely well-travelled, and he hasn't stopped yet. Hey, Mike Hammond, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us all the way from Rio. Well, it's my pleasure. Even though I'm on
0: the other side of the Southern Hemisphere, it's always good to speak to a a fellow Aussie, you know, a comrade.
1: Now, 17 years in total behind the microphone, and a voice that's so familiar to so many, when did that radio bug really bite you? Oh, wow. So,
0: long story, they usually are. Um, When I was uh, sort of my early teens... Uh, My dad started a a business over in uh, this little country that nobody had ever heard of back then called the United Arab Emirates, and we moved to live in Dubai, and uh, it wasn't the glittering, fantastic place that it is now. Basically, uh, back in the late 70s, it was a shithole, and all I wanted to do was get back home to Australia and back to my mates, pretty normal thing for a 13, 14-year-old boy. So, in my desperation, I would tune into shortwave radio broadcasts and listen to Radio Australia from Dubai, which at the time had one TV station, one radio station. It was just, it just didn't attract me on any way. And um, I would tune into Radio Australia just to hear an Australian accent. Um, and then soon after that, mum and dad realized they needed to get me home. So, I was sent back to Australia to boarding school. And then I used to commute back and forth on school holidays back to Dubai and, and Sydney. Most of my, my border mates at school would get on the mail train and spend 16 hours going back to, you know, uh, Brand or Canamble or wherever they were from. And I'd spend 16 hours getting back to Dubai. So um, the radio thing really hit me there. That, that was when I realised just what a connection um, familiar sounding voice can be, how reassuring it can be. And and I know now, at the time I wasn't aware of it, but I know now looking back, that was the emotional uh,
1: connection for me back then. So did you have any formal broadcasting training early on?
0: Nothing. In fact, um, I, as I said, I came back to Sydney and went to boarding school. My family was still in Dubai, Uh, did pretty well in the HSC, had every intention of actually going to to veterinary college and training to be a vet um, and specializing in equine sciences because I had cousins who were in the racing industry. But um, in, the, in the time between leaving school, uh, getting my GCSE in result, and before uni started, I went surfing. And I was up in northern New South Wales, and I heard an ad on 2GM, the, the local radio station up in uh, Grafton, uh, for a course that was going to be run at the Australian Film and Television School. I mean, it didn't even have radio in its name. It was the inaugural course that they ran for uh, commercial radio announcers. I thought, oh, you know, it's a couple of months. I'll do it and fill in some time. So I applied and um, apparently there were you know, over a thousand uh, uh, people who wanted to join and they took 11 people and I was one of them. So uh, I did the course. The course finished on Friday. On Saturday morning, mum and dad were waving goodbye to me on a platform at Central Railway Station and I was off, my, off on my way
1: to breakfast for my first job in radio. So that's kind of how it happened. And of course, the first station was 2LF. That's in 1983 as a 17-year-old. So young, uh, was the experience daunting or exciting for you? Oh, I was crap.
0: And I knew I was crap. I was so bad. Um, So the way it worked back then, um, so a lovely guy called Ron Camplin uh, owned three uh, regional radio stations, all in sort of uh, markets next door to each other. And so he thought the way to beat the big networks was he was going to group his three radio stations and form his own network. It was called the Gold Country Radio Network. It was 2BS in Baffist, 2MG in Mudgee, and 2LF in, based out of Young, is where it broadcast from. But 2LF had three major cities or towns in its coverage area. There was Cootamundra, Young, and Cowra. And, of course, local radio meant you had to be local, which meant you had to have, at some point in the day, uh, broadcast from your town on the radio station. So I would do an hour's worth of breakfast, an hour's worth of afternoons, and half an hour worth of drive. So at times of the day, I'd be on from from the Cowra studio, which was this funny old thing. It was a relic from the 1940s in this glass booth next to an old picture theatre that had been turned into a roller rink. And um, I remember walking in there, and I've just come from the Australian Film and Television School, which had the latest um, RMK panels, and all the flash gear. And I've never forgotten, I walked in there and I saw this AWA Conselet, which basically had four faders and a master switch on it. And, and everything was dual switched. And a microphone that hung from a pole from the ceiling. A big AWA or radio Vox uh, or RKA uh, microphone. And turntables that I'd never seen in my life that were as big as oil drum barrels. You know, they were the old transcription discs. That ran at sixteen and an eighth or something revolutions uh, per minute, and uh, I just remember thinking to myself, "What uh, have I got myself into?" here? So anyway, took me took me a couple of days to to master the, <laughs> the studio, and uh, yeah, and and that was the start. You know, like any like anything, a lot of what we do in this craft is learned. You know, a
1: lot of it is learned. Speaking of craft, learning your craft in the studio is one thing, but those initial outside broadcasts can be something else, like the grand opening of Woolworths in Cowra. What do you remember about that experience? (laughs) So,
0: like I said, the facilities weren't uh, weren't that modern. This is like 1983. Uh, The facilities of the radio station uh, were like, they were back from the 40s, including the OB gear. And I remember when our tech, his name was Bill, he's like an old, old country guy. He used to chew on a stick of grass, and uh, he drove up the road from Young, got to this brand new Woolworths, super, uh, you know, supermarket in Kara. It was like the the, the bees knees. He unloaded the OB gear, and the manager of the supermarket said, "You're not putting that shit in my new supermarket. Get it out of here." Anyway, once the manager realised that the OB couldn't go ahead without this um, this desk and you know gear. Uh, we
1: did the ob but it nearly didn't happen because the equipment was, was so ancient so from 2lf it was a couple of years in 2gz in orange and then on to the nation's capital in canberra to 2cc now this would have been the first time that you would have encountered competition from commercial listeners from of course 2ca what made 2 double c different from your first two appointments
0: well i mean um 2gz well, i can't skip over that that was a fantastic opportunity for me when i moved up to orange from from 2lf in Canberra and uh i i happened i've been so lucky to find uh wonderfully supportive um professionals who uh, when i was a young i was 17 18 you know i knew nothing and they somehow took me under their wing or thought that there was something that i had something you know that they didn't just brush me off they 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 helped me and so anyway uh, Terry Daniel was a great PD that I had in 2GZ in Orange, a wonderful supporter. And then to move to Canberra, Wayne Mack was the PD at 2CC. And Wayne had worked in Sydney at 2UW, you know, fantastic 2UW and all that sort of stuff. So he was a cap city jock. And I'm coming a bit in awe of Wayne, you know, because he was the PD. And it was a whole different vibe. Wow. To be in a competitive market, even though it was 2CA uh, down the road, um, every survey period, no matter what happened, we would celebrate the win, even though we were rating like 55% and 2CA it was a 20% or something like that. By the time I arrived at 2CC, they'd already done all the damage. But um, it, it was still a wonderful thing to um, work, in a, work in an environment where you knew you had a cohesive team and everyone was working for the same objective, which was to win, you know, W-I-N, win. And that's all it was about. I, you know, probably didn't behave too well, on some occasions, it's celebrating those wins. But uh, nonetheless, they were, it was a great environment to be in, you know, to, to really feel competition every time you open that microphone fader. It's,
1: it's kind of exhilarating. So was the 2 C format at the time exactly what you were looking for as a young jock? Oh, look, as a young jock,
0: I didn't dare, um, I didn't dare really have an opinion on the format. The formats that I worked at were decided on by people who knew their markets. There had been research done. And my job, as I saw it then, and I still see it now, was to come and apply the format. So in doing that, I've worked at sort of, um, you know, uh, middle of the road, adult contemporary, CHR formats. So my job's to present the format. You know, my job is to be a part of the total machine of the radio station. And as the broadcaster now, so you're the you're the last checkpoint. You're like the when you, when you're at the desk, you're like the captain uh, at the front of an airplane. So you know, there's a lot of work has gone into everything to get the shift ready by all the other people in scheduling and in sales and and all the rest of it, production. But then your job is to bring it all together into a cohesive program and to pick up any last-minute mistakes or things that that may not be correct. And so. Uh, it's, yeah, no, I, I never really had a problem with formats, although I do remember uh, much, much later when I was probably a bit older and a little bit more arrogant. Uh, a good mate of mine, Peter Clay, um, they just started, DMG had just started with the um, the easy format that they run at, um, what's the station in Sydney? They call it now. It, it had changed. It had been Vega, of course, Let's Star. It'd been Vega. There'd been a country, sort of a country style format, a middle of the road format, blah, blah, blah. and then they decided on Smooth. And it was at the start when they were um, they've sort of had a, a sort of a production music bed under the announcers as they came in and did their bits and pieces. And I'd worked with Peter Clay at Today Fan. We were great mates and still are. And Pete said, "Well, come on in, Mike. You know what? What shift do you want to do? Do you want to do breakfast or do you want to do drive? You know, let's have a chat." I went in there. And he said, let's pop into the studio and do a couple of, you know, just a couple of soundies. And I remember taking my headphones off after about three back cells. I said, Pete, if I come and work here, I'm going to kill myself because I, I realized I couldn't do that sort of, you know, high at smooth FM and what a beautiful day. It blow me up. So <laughs> that's the one time I wasn't able really to, uh, to go with a format. Pete, Pete was very polite. He never said anything to me. But right. <laughs> I pretty much helped you make the decision.
1: More, music. More music. 2NX. 2NX, one of the great regional radio stations in Australia, and both the training ground and home to some of the best broadcasters in the country. How'd you land the job there?
0: Well, um, so in my career in radio, I've never actually applied for a job. It's, your next job is always listening to you. When you don't realise it, and um, I wasn't aware. Sort of, I was on air down at Two Double C in Canberra, and Keith Harris, who was the program director of Two NX, he knew he had a couple of slots that were coming up that he needed to fill, and he had a great uh, a great slate of broadcasters. Little Andy Simpson, Derry Rogers. I mean, these guys have all worked Cap City, Two SM, and big markets, and um, and we're working Two NX, which wasn't really it wasn't a little market. It was it was a busy, happening market, Newcastle, and. Um, Anyway, Keith went on a road trip as PDs used to do, and probably still should do, um, and went, went on a listening tour down down the East Coast and got to Canberra and heard me and, yeah, gave me a phone call. And of course, when I rang Mac, Wayne Mac at home, said, Oh, Mac, um, I've had a call from Heath, Keith Harris. He goes, oh, quit. <laughs> He knew straight away what, what had happened. But, um, you know, that's so how I got to 2X in Newcastle.
1: So how much did your two years at 2NX shape you for the rest of your career? Well, once
0: again, you know, Mac, uh, Wayne Mac had been a great uh, a great mentor in Canberra. Uh, for the first time, I started to understand formatics and rotations and, uh, you know, the, the science of radio. And also through this guy that everyone told me was an old grump, but he was great. He was the chief engineer at the station. And um, at 2 at C, the transmitter field, was right next door to the radio station, out in an area of the ACT called Gangalan, which at the time was just farmland. It's all houses now. But um, we used to get all the uh, all the new songs to be sent from the radio companies, uh, from the record companies, sorry, on um, on, on vinyl, seven-inch uh, 45s, the singles. And those ones that didn't make the grade, right, and there were a lot of them that never got on there, we used to go out the back and we'd frisbee them and try and hit the broadcast towers. And smash the smash these things to smithereens. So it was called Vinyl Valley out the back. So it was it was from learning that stuff with Mac and um, coming to appreciate the science uh, of formatics and how radio worked. And then with Keith um an X, the same thing. You know, it was a, just a bigger market. I mean, I, I sort of had tried every time I made a station change to always move to a larger market. And okay. so. Um, so 2 obviously and 2 and X were well, they were the fomenting of my of my years. And then of course, because 2NX was associated with 2SM in Sydney, uh, that's that's how I made the move to to Sydney from Newcastle. Rock, rock, rock
1: rock, rock, now Mike, you would have been a young teenager in those really Halcyon days of 2SM in the middle to late 70s. Was it always a burning ambition to eventually work there? Oh, of course it was. I mean, it was
0: the station that I grew up listening to. So um, all through the seventies, as I was a, a, a teenager, well, uh, not even a teenager for a lot of them, and I'm a lot of a lot of that decade, uh, that was the radio station I listened to. I mean, everybody did. There was no FM radio. I think there was only five commercial stations in Sydney at the time, and and 2SM was the contemporary station that young people listened to. And so, um, when when the time came and I got the opportunity to work there, I was so so thrilled really was thrilled you know
1: the youngest ever drive time announcer in the history of sydney radio at the time who do you think was more nervous about the appointment you or the management oh
0: i was too dumb to be nervous um, <laughs> but looking back on it um management really took a punt they really did much i did just walk straight into drive i i you know I earned my stripes there when it did mid dawns and um and, and had done that for i think you know six months or so and um had learnt my way around the station. Had become familiar and comfortable with the, the gear. Um, the the big advantage for me there was I was a Sydney boy, so I knew my city. I knew the ins and outs, the the, the trends, the you um, know the put downs, the things you could say that had a you know, double entendre that had different meanings. Um, so I was finally able to broadcast to a home crowd. That would get me, and that I got, and that that I think was, was that was the that was the thing that sort of clinched the
1: deal. Now, no doubt, in any job there can be some professional jealousy. This young kid comes in and takes over one of the prime time shifts. How were you received by the other jocks?
0: Sure. Um, look, I've always tried to be everyone's friend, um, and you can understand that there's sort of sometimes professional, um, you know, anxieties or we call it jealousy, but just rivalry. But know um, the other, I've always found on the whole, no. those I work with have been have been supportive. Well, to my face, anyway, you know, it's a pretty bad industry for. Oh, by the way, if you heard, you know, it's like, and and also too, I um, think failing in the industry is that it's so fast to pull you down, and, and very few people to say, "Hey, mate, that that really you did good. That sounded really good." I've been lucky enough. To have enough people say to me, "Good on you, mate. That was really good." At just the time when I thought, "My doing, I've got to get out of here," you know, there are the, those little words of encouragement sometimes are so important.
1: Now, FM radio was very much part of the broadcasting landscape by then. So, how was Two SM coping with that in 1986 when you arrived?
0: So, when I arrived, Two uh, SM, the uh, rock of the 80s was still sort of happening. But Charlie, Charlie Fox had left and got a triple M, and the, the downward slide commenced probably about within a year of me arriving at 2SM. And anyway, within 18 months of me getting there or two years, um, the Catholic church sold the station and, uh, this guy called Sam Galliabold. Lovely. He was a lovely guy, but his job was to come up and turn the great CHR 2SM into a light and easy 1269. And, uh, That meant everyone had to go, except, to his credit, Sam was very nice to me. He said, look, Mike, um, you know, there's not going to be a role for you on air as an announcer, but we'd really love you to do our traffic reports. And I had to very politely say, oh, Sam, thank you, but no. And uh, anyway, within a week or so, I heard about this thing happening down in Melbourne called 3TT, because 3DB was going through a similar formatic change. And, um, uh, yeah, I spoke with Dave Dolkin. And uh, the team down there, and I, I ended up making the move to Melbourne.
1: So, Mike, what were some of your highlights at working at Two SM? Oh, wow! Well, one was to actually
0: be able to say the station name. Um, uh, working with Jim Angel in the newsroom. I'm Jim Angel. You know, he was a, a lovely guy and a classic broadcaster. Um, also, meeting with Father Jim McLaren, who one day. Uh, had to take me aside and have a stern chat with me because I used the word condom on the radio. Don't forget AIDS had just started and uh, (laughs) I thought it was appropriate. But uh, good old Father Jim, he used to run a uh, a sort of Catholic talkback segment on Sunday nights. And it was everybody's, uh, when I was still at school, it was everybody's sort of ambition to ring up and uh, trick Father Jim. You'd ring up on the talkback and just tell the most ridiculous stories. But um, anyway. That's my one of my memories with Father Jim, but um, also being able to uh, be the 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 um, host of the Coca Cola Surf about Surf contest, which was very famous. And I remember one time being on Manly Beach. You know, there was like fifty thousand um, spectators on the beach. And here's me running the show, and I I remember at one stage I think it was it was that I was so scared. I thought, what the hell am I going to do? And then I remember just saying to myself, Well, you know what, Mike. They expect you to be this guy to do this, this, and this. So just go and do it, and that's when I sort of realised that you can you can put on your Mike the Radio DJ hat, or Mike the Guy hat, and and you don't have to necessarily always be the same person. You can be who people expect you to be, and that that helped me get rid of nerves. I think.
1: So, Mike, as you mentioned before, you moved down south, walked into a situation as a call sign of 61 years was being discarded, along with radio legends such as Keith McGowan, Burt Newton and John Vertigan, and being replaced by the new call sign, new format, and new jocks such as Gavin Wood, Jeff Cox, Carl Magrin, Nigel Ross and, of course, Mike Hammond. Was it a smooth transition?
0: Well, surprisingly, yes. But I think it was because of the, the very generous attitudes... Of the people who we took over the chairs from, I mean, uh, I took over from Bert, so I went down there to do mornings. And Bert, of course, Bert Newton, huge star. Uh, Bert had his own office in in the 3DB um, studio complex um, with his own fridge full of uh, what's it called? What was it called? Albert's Ale or something like that. I think it was a, a Melbourne brewery, um, and that's the, the beer that he used to drink. And and he was so charming and polite to me. But I, I knew what the feeling was like because it had just happened to me at 2SM. You know, I'd just been punted for, I think, I think, um, who was it, uh, Gavin McRae? Uh, uh, anyway, i just been punted for another guy who, of course, was much older and sounded older than me, and he was there to do a, a light and easy format. So I, I understood that it's, um, you know, it's a difficult time. But at the end of the day, everyone's professional. And and the people who were leaving 3DB knew that 3DB had to change um, for it to have any chance of survival. And uh, we launched on April 1st. It was, in fact, April Fool's Day. But we did it to coincide with the big uh, Channel 7 telephone. Um, so our first day of broadcasting, we were all out on location, tying in with the Channel 7 telephone. So we were all on TV Um so people got to know us really quickly so as far as stations excuse me station launches and format launches and there was a great tv campaign as well it was really successful
1: now again you moved into a marketplace with a strong fm presence how did the double t format stand up oh well yeah no
0: we it rated well i mean you know fox was 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 a a dynamo triple m of course had been aeon. I think it, maybe it was still aeon when I was there back in those days. But, um, you know, Melbourne was no different to Sydney. You know, the FMs had come in and had stopped their foot on everyone. But I remember when I finally got a call from um, the Austereo PD, Greg Smith, um, he passed the comment when he was sort of, you know, getting around to suggesting that maybe I might want to go back to my home city and they just bought Today FM. He he said to me that Double T had been good for getting the kitty out of me. So um, obviously working that format, um, he it, it 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 helped develop
1: me as a helped develop me as a presenter. Yeah. One thing about the Double T format was that they were pretty active with the old summer beach broadcasts. It was amazing.
0: I mean, you know, the Alberts who owned two UW um, owned three Double T, and there was just. It was like the good old days of um, money was not really any big issue. I mean, I remember uh, having, I got off air doing a shift and then I went to the Melbourne helipad to take a helicopter down to one of the beaches where the 3 double T summer beach bus was and there was like some bikini girl contest. That I, I flew in on a helicopter close to this thing. It was star radio. It was fantastic. It was really good.
1: Now, Mike, I think you're on record as saying that your time at Double T was some of the most enjoyable of your career. What made it so special?
0: Well, <laughs> helicopters, um, you yeah. know, jet skis, uh, and the team. I mean, they were a lovely bunch of people, a really, a really tight team. And and I was, kind of, look, I was really tall. Um, I'd only been there for like thirteen or four, maybe a year and a half, when I got the phone call from Greg Smith uh, when they bought. Today and I was really torn um, about leaving 3TT, except for Melbourne. Melbourne and I just, uh, we we didn't get on, you know, I was a Sydney boy, and I just couldn't handle it sort of getting overcast and cloudy sometime in late April, and the sun not coming out again until November. I just I, I just couldn't adjust to it.
1: I'm was probably inevitable that you'd end up on the fm dial and that opportunity came as you mentioned on today fm with mike hammond and the breakfast crew so how does a guy who essentially worked every shift bar breakfast end up on breakfast
0: mm, i don't know consultants came to town they listened to them they decided i was the guy um but i when i first went there i was doing uh So Today FM had uh, the format. Again, this was like a big format change. You know, a stereo uh, bought Today FM, and Today FM had been run as like they used to call it, the White Shoe Brigade. You know, it was um, in tune today. It was all, you know, very, uh, well, I mean, what we call a psychographic format today. Um, It was all melodic, you know, crisscross, sailing, all that sort of stuff. And um, I was put on nights when I first got there, and All of a sudden, at 7pm, I'd come on doing a night show, which was basically what you'd hear on an FM night show now, um, which was, you know, MC Hammer, I can't can't touch this, all those sorts of songs. And I remember the first ever ratings that came out, um, the shift I was doing went down like four points (laughs) because it was a totally different format to to what the radio station was and had been for years. And George Moore, God bless him, came up to me and said, look, you you shouldn't take it to heart, you know. yeah, you know, these things can happen when a new person takes over a shift. And blah, blah. And I, I, I really respected him for saying that because he was genuine in making sure I was right. But I knew that I was one of the invaders. I knew that what I was doing was what the station was going to become. So I wasn't in the least bit worried about, about going down by that amount. But um, I ended up doing, I ended up doing breakfast, which just did not work for me. I, I could not physically function. I think I did it for nearly two years. And um, I i just remember a feeling of dread at 8 p.m. every night that if I wasn't in bed and asleep at 8 p.m., I was uh, i nearly, I was sort of semi-panic attacking because I knew I had to be up at 4 a.m. to get into the station and prepare a show. And uh, I can't nap. If I nap in the afternoons... Um, I'm I'm like a, a a killer bear, you know. I just I wake up and it may as well have just left me asleep. Um, and so uh, I I found that I I couldn't function uh, in that day part. I just I just couldn't. I mean, we had great success. I remember we were chasing Mulray, who of course was a, a huge uh, V thing in Sydney radio at the time. And um, I got within two points, two, one and a half points, uh, but I couldn't keep going. And so then I moved into into mornings.
1: Yeah, just looking down the roster, pretty strong lineup right across today with the names such as George Moore, Tony Hartney, Keith Williams, etc. They're all great names in Australian radio. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, and such a such an honour and thrill to to work with them and and be part of the team that they were. I mean, uh, I've been very lucky, I think, to have sort of span um, different eras in broadcasting. Um, where, you know, I used to listen to George Moore when it was Gibson and Moore on 2SM. So I, George was like, oh, my God, you know, you, you didn't know whether to look at him when he was walking towards you down the hallway. Um, and so, yeah, I've been very fortunate to work with 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 these people. And the thing I find, the commonality with all of those people was their dedication to their craft and um, their professionalism and... Um, the, the way they were, were were supportive of each other. You know, that's, that's what always made a winning station was a station that had a team where everybody had each other's back.
1: Now, after Today FM, there was a 22-year hiatus as you very successfully took on other projects in the media but returned to WSFM, then Today FM, between 2017 and 2021. Now, was radio as much fun second time around?
0: Yeah, no, yeah yes. Look, it, it had changed a lot. It had changed a lot. It had got a lot nastier. A lot of the people... So I was kind of lucky enough, I guess, that when that great routing of everybody who worked in radio through the late 90s and noughties, early noughties, when automation really kicked in and networking and all that, I was blitzfully working in television and, um, you know, not really paying attention. And I think a lot of people... A lot of people got really burned and really hurt, and uh, quite nasty and bitter. And um, I just found there was a a real change in the um, in the environment of of radio stations. Uh, but the reason I ended up at WS was because I'd I'd basically retired. <laughs> um, I'd finished working at Foxtel, and I was talking with Duncan Campbell. I said, Duncan, I think I need a job. He said, What? I said, No, no, it's, it's not about money. I don't. It's not. I don't. I said, I think I need a, I need a routine. I, I need something to get up for each day. So I've kind of worked out that retirement is not my thing. So uh, I went and worked for WS. Uh, it was a family problem that I had to deal with, so I, I had to leave WS. And then COVID kicked, or COVID had really kicked in. And, um, of course, our borders were closed, and our government was telling us as Australians that we can't even leave Australia. So... Tell me I can't do something and there's my next challenge. So um, anyway, I got myself an exemption and I, I came to Brazil to Rio de Janeiro, you know. that's That was my way of escaping, hiding under my doona with the rest of my, my countrymen, you know, being scared of myself. So, so I, look, I, I'm not an anti-vaccine. Or I, I'm not saying that COVID was a conspiracy or none of that. But um, things really changed. And I was really shocked at how quickly how compliant we were with allowing it to happen, that we were just told, you know, you can't even sit on a park bench and eat a sandwich. And so we all dutifully went okay. And, and it, it it really troubled me. And so, anyway, got away to uh, Brazil, came back to Australia, and, of course, had to do my two weeks, uh, you know, imprisonment in a hotel room on my own um, and pay $3,000 for the pleasure, but, hey, first world problems. But um, I went through all of that, and then I realised you know, there's a lot of life to live and you can miss out on a lot while you're treading water. And so basically that was the kick in the ass I needed to just move into the next stage of things in life.
1: Okay, Mike, a couple of quick random questions. Filling in for the great John Laws in 2002. How would you enjoy that?
0: I was scared shitless. Um, Lawsy was great. And the other thing was too, uh, when I did the show, I was very mindful that the audience was his audience. You know, they, even though I was giving my opinions and uh, discussing things and using my own uh, general knowledge about stuff, um, it was his audience. And so they had to be treated with respect, you know. Um, I mean, every audience needs to be treated with respect. But but he's essentially, you know, they had listened to lawsy They were welded onto him for decades, and they didn't need any young buck coming in and just trying to shake things up. And uh, so I was... I was very mindful over his audience the other thing is too that talk radio essentially is conservative so there's no good going in there trying to be you know mr mr left wing you know university guy because blah, blah, blah. you know you had to be or the abc for that that was the role they played and so there was two ue and uh, two gb in sydney that were the, the big talk powerhouses of course alan jones and uh, you know the, the market is conservative and it was a tough time too when i was on air filling in for Lorsi, I had to handle the uh, Tampa throwing children overboard affair. I had uh, our foreign minister of the day, you know, basically basically lying, and I, I had to say to him, to his face, look, you're lying to us, you know, about what was going on. Um, it's pretty heavy stuff that you have to... You've you got to think, I better be damn sure about what I'm saying here and how I'm going to say it before I do this. But nonetheless, the job is... To do it and uh yeah it wasn't a great time in our history i don't think as as we all know now
1: now is it correct you have both a pilots and helicopter license
0: <laughs> they're not current <laughs> the pilot the pilot license wasn't ever a student license um, that came from working out at 2gz in orange where um a mate of mine was a guy called bill hazelton who uh, ran, it was part of the great Hazleton Airlines um, university. he was a crop duster. And uh he flew like a crop duster. And uh I said, Bill, I think I want to learn to fly. He goes, Oh yeah, mate, coming out of Spring Hill, blah, blah, blah. Get it, get in the plane. <laughs> and he, he pushes the throttle up. He says, just steer, just with your feet, keep it on the white line. I said, okay. I'm just sitting him like he starts rolling a cigarette and pushes the thing into, into the throttle right up. Running down the it's just pull back on a stick on what and that's how I started to learn how to fly.
1: Yeah. It was fun. Finally, Mike, you've made a living out of being a fast talker. Did you fast talk your way through the armed robbery in Brazil? <laughs> no,
0: because I lost my phone and cash.
1: <laughs>
0: no. Um no, that was a surprise. Uh it actually really was a surprise because I've never had any any problem. Anywhere in this country, except on that day, and it was my fault because I was on a an isolated beach with a friend. And, Of course, it wasn't as isolated as we thought. And this guy starts running across the sand towards me. And I go, "Hey, Antonio, who's is this Who's this guy?" And as he's running, I'm sort of looking, looking. And I realise he's got. So he pointed to me, and by the time he gets up to me, I realise it's a gun, and he's got the gun pointed right at my head. And I just burst out laughing. I, it, I don't know if that's a standard reaction to being scared or shocked, but I started laughing, and then, of course, he had a uh, a friend who was over in the other end of the bushes at the other end of the bridge. He came running up, and all I remember in my very basic Portuguese was understanding a uh, guy number two saying to the guy with the gun, "Watch out for this crazy gringo because he's not scared," and that made me scared because I thought, "Oh shit!" You know. So anyway, um, they got my phone and a bit of cash. And I guess they needed it more than I did.
1: I'm hearing the light from the window I'm seeing the sound of the sea My feet have gone loose from their moorings I'm feeling quite wonderful. Okay, Mike, 12 quick questions we ask all our guests. The first one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died?
0: Well, that was 1980, and I was uh, I was either still in Dubai or had just come back to Sydney to boarding school. So I don't know if I got the news that contemporaneously. So um, I do remember, of course, it happening, and I do remember being shocked. And I do remember, um, you yeah. know... It was kind of the start of the conspiracy theories that he'd been killed by the CIA because he was so anti-establishment they'd knocked him off. And that the guy who did it was a, you know, a sleeper cell, blah, 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 blah. It
1: may be true. I
0: don't know. But um, that's what I really remember uh, in the early
1: days after John was shot. Mike, the last concert ticket you paid for? I don't think I've ever paid for one. Reoccurring answer, that one. Concert act that you regret never seeing? Look, I can't say there's any I regret not seeing. There are plenty that I'm really glad I did.
0: Um I remember seeing uh Ray Charles in concert in Sydney at the entertainment center on his last world tour and he died sort of like within a year. I was I was really glad I saw him because he's he was such a such a such a feature in the whole music business, from blues right through. So I, I that's a show that really sticks in my mind. Also, Queen, with the um, Radio Gaga concert, I Want to Break Free. I remember the big spinning wheel at the Sydney Entertainment Centre, and out comes Freddie in his fake boobs pushing the, the, the hoover across the floor. I mean, there's been some amazing shows.
1: Mike, is there a word that you had most trouble pronouncing on air? <laughs>
0: um, not many, I don't think. I do remember at one stage, you know, at 2GZ when you had to read the funeral announcements in the morning. I think I once said uh, funeral corsage instead of cortage. <laughs> so, um, so that's what I remember. As I learned out afterwards. Oh, and also Duane well, Eddy, I called him Duane because I'd never heard of it. So there's two words that I that spring to mind. They were both from Orange. But um, yeah, it only really takes embarrassing yourself a couple of times to learning pretty quickly.
1: Okay. Was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those don't come Monday orders? Oh,
0: <laughs> my very first radio station. 2LF, it was the uh, America's Cup win. And uh, Bob Hawke had been on TV saying, anyone who sacks anyone for not coming to week today is a bum or something. It should be a public holiday. It should be a whatever national holiday. And uh, I was doing my bit of the breakfast show and... Uh, the sales manager rang me up and said, Oh, Bob Fox just declared today a public holiday. So of course I dutifully said that on air. I so said there's the record that was on air at the time, faded out. And uh with that, buses out on country road stopped and started doing three-point turns and uh took all the kids home. So <laughs> there was no one at school, no one turned up for the next shift at the advertisement. I mean, I shut the area down. Um Yeah, that's where I learned to always double check sources. But that's, I I also realized I got to get out of here. And that's when I took the drive up to Orange and met the people at 2GZ. And that that helped facilitate the move to uh, to the next station.
1: Skyhooks or Sherbet?
0: Oh, definitely Sherbet. My cousins uh, who lived in the Shire, which was kind of, uh, you know, we're talking in the 70s now, the Shire in Sydney was a much rougher, uh, (laughs) much rougher area. I mean, think Puberty Blues, that was the Shire. And uh, they were into Skyhooks. So me being a good pitch and Suburbs boy, it was Sherbert. To this day, one of the great uh, thrills of working in this business was to meet Daryl Braithwaite and to get to work with him man, you know, and, and just parlay with him, um, you know, as, as a mate. as a great thrill.
1: Rolling Stones or The Beatles? Both. Depends on the mood. Mike, that most treasured piece of memorabilia that you have from those early radio days. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay.
0: So I'm, I'm going through... Um, I'm going through a bit of a declutter in life at the moment, I'm living here around Rio de Janeiro, but still commuting back and forward to home in Sydney. And uh, the other month when I was home, I found 10 autographed Kylie Minogue albums that she gave me years ago that somehow never found their way to the prize cupboard. So if anyone wants one, I <laughs>
1: Can you recall the biggest news story that broke while you were on air?
0: There's been lots of situations, including one occasion where I had to report on the death of a friend in a... Uh, professional and sort of news-like manner. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> when it comes to news stories, see above um, the America's Cup.
1: So was there a moment that someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck? H-
0: hasn't happened. Hasn't happened. Um, because I kind of understand that they're there doing a job and I'm doing a job and I respect them and I've always found um, people I've interviewed to be respectful back, you know, I mean, cause they, they soon work out whether or not you've done any research and whether or not you're interested in asking them about interesting things, not just the standard right questions, which of course you still have to do anyway, cause they're the bits that you need to pull in there. But I remember being nervous about having to do, uh, an interview with Billy Idol at the height of his rebel yell fame. Uh, he'd come to Sydney, uh, but did the interview with him. It went really well. He invited me to go to the show that night. I did that. And then afterwards, I was invited backstage and went to his after party. And so I ended up partying with him. And I thought, you know what? was no reason to be nervous. He's a nice guy. And we got on really well. So, I mean, it's one time I remember being apprehensive or
1: nervous. Best words of advice from a program manager? It's not the amount that you say on air that matters. And finally, two albums that you'd consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years.
0: So my teenage years, of course, were uh, late 70s, like from 1979, 79, 79, through to the mid 80s. And there was a real change, a real change in music uh, back then. And it was because of an Australian invention called the Fairlight Music Computer. Uh, Peter Vogel had invented this amazing thing. And it totally changed uh, the sound of contemporary, of pop. Um, because all of a sudden, samples started appearing in songs. So artists like uh, Pet Shop Boys, Eurythmics. Um, and, and I found that it was about the construction of the songs that, that started to attract me, not just the song or the melody or whatever, it was how the song was produced. And I think that's still a thing that that is with me today. I, I'm always interested in... Um, the layering of sounds and the construction of sound. So um, favourite albums back at that time were Stop Making Sense, Talking Heads, Psychedelic Furs Forever Now with President Gas and Love My Way, um, Art of Noise was Close to the Edit. That was a 12-inch single. Of course, we all remember 12-inch singles. They were the, they were the big thing back in those days. Um, Duran Duran, everything they made. Uh, Pet Shop Boys. I think their great one of their great songs still was Opportunities, one of their first singles that came from their album please so it gives you an idea of the the sort of stuff that really really got got you know they were the earworms for me and and they they still are i still listen to a lot of that music and i'm amazed with it
1: well mike we've covered so much of a great radio career haven't even touched on your life as a game show host maybe we'll keep that for another time hey listen thanks so much for your time today and also too for your contribution to australian radio
0: It's been great talking with you, Paul. Thanks so much for asking me to to be a part of the podcast. There's been some great people I've really enjoyed listening to, and I look forward to who else is to come in the future.
1: Mike Hammond on Pilots of the Airwaves.